0: Welcome to the Fields of Success podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, business owner, and rural Ontarian, Brian Hilt, to hear stories of how successful entrepreneurs navigated the challenges on the path to success, and get insights from business consultants and professional advisors about continuing to grow and operate a successful business. Here's your host, Brian Hilt.
1: Greetings and welcome to the Fields of Success podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hilt. Today I'm honored to have a special guest on the podcast, Bud Arnold. He's an accountant with Collins Barrow based out of Guelph and Allura. And we're going to be talking about passive income for Canadian controlled private corporations. It's sure to be an interesting conversation. I know I'm going to learn a lot and uh, I'm excited to have you on. Bud, thanks for coming on. Thanks,
2: Brian. It's uh, good to be here.
1: Well, let's start similar to what we have at the beginning of the previous episodes. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and your current position with Collins Barrow? Kind of just your professional background, I guess, and uh, how you got to where you're at today.
2: Sure, thanks. I studied accounting at University of Waterloo and took a a specialty interest in tax when I was there. um, And so I went on to get my CPA, uh, CA designation a few years ago as a chartered professional accountant, and uh, went through the CPA Canada's in-depth tax course to become what the firm's recognize as a tax specialist. So That's the area I've been practicing in for about uh, six or seven years now. I had been formerly with, with another firm here in Guelph, and I've moved over now to Collins Barrow a, a couple of years ago, uh, focusing on tax planning for owner-managed businesses in, in a variety of industries agriculture, as well as uh, other uh, manufacturing or sales, uh, consulting, professionals, whole scope of different uh, different industries.
1: Very good. So when you say owner-managed business, I was going to follow up actually and ask that uh, if you had any kind of focus areas. You said owner-managed businesses. That would be basically what you're saying is not a publicly traded corporation, really. It could be a corporation, but uh, the owner controls most of the shares, etc
2: that's right yeah so some of our, our clients uh, have have shares owned by non family members or shares owned by non active parties in the business but uh, there's typically still that connection to the, uh, the the shareholders are also there's some relation to the, the people managing and operating the business but it takes us out of the the public uh, company scope and focuses more on the, the small business or medium-sized businesses in here, okay, great.
1: And you mentioned that you are a tax specialist. I believe is what you said with Collins Barrow. So, for I guess those of us outside the industry, we think well, accountants are all tax specialists, but there's some further education and such. There, could you maybe in layman's terms say what's a tax specialist um, and what what does that mean? A little bit different from just being an accountant, I guess.
2: Yeah, good good question. Uh, We, in the industry, typically uh, call ourselves a tax specialist after going through either a master's of tax program or there's a professional program that's a a three-year part-time program through uh, the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada uh, to build our expertise in the tax area. And then typically after going through that, we work primarily in the tax field to kind of keep up our, our tax knowledge. And so that's the, the road I've gone is through this tax uh, in-depth tax course and, and working now almost exclusively in the tax area.
1: Fantastic. All right, well, let's move on then to the topic uh, for today's discussion. So we're going to discuss some of the changes that were brought about with the tax law changes that were enacted here in 2018. The, specifically, we're going to discuss passive income in a Canadian-controlled private corporation, which throughout the podcast episode, I'm sure we'll be referring to as a CCPC. I know that I read a lot about this leading up to it. There was quite a bit of information put out by the various Uh, business associations and federations and such. And then there were some changes made and it came out. And now it seems that, okay, now got to actually interpret what actually in the end ended up there. So I'm excited to learn from you today. And I think that there'll be some real value to the listeners. So to start off, there may be some listeners who are thinking, well, I'm not incorporated. Is this really relevant to me? Maybe they're currently a sole proprietor or a partnership. So, before we delve into the details, could you address that question maybe? Why would this information be relevant even to someone who at the present time is an unincorporated business owner?
2: Yeah, so these new rules really don't apply directly and currently to an unincorporated uh, party, but uh, often as a business grows for either tax or other reasons, whether it's liability concerns or Uh, Or or another case, then a a small business might decide to incorporate. The business owners might decide to incorporate it, and so once you do incorporate that business, then the the tax laws that apply to that business change to include this uh, this new set of rules, Um, and it really can, in some instances, uh, change the the discussion of when it makes sense to incorporate, because we might be Losing out now on one of the tax benefits that we used to have access to, uh, which was the small business deductions that we'll, we'll be talking about more. Okay.
1: Yeah, very interesting. I think it would be helpful to define some terms at the start as well. There's a lot of acronyms, I know, in my reading around the matter that are thrown around, and some other terms which can often be quite confusing. So I thought maybe here at the beginning, it would be helpful to just define some terms for the listeners. So is it all right with you if I go through some terms and just ask for a brief explanation of them for the listeners?
2: Yeah, that's a great idea. We like our jargon and and specialized defined terms in tax and uh, other areas of professional practice. So good idea. All right. Very good.
1: So first off, I mentioned already Canadian Controlled Private Corporation or CCPC. Uh, could you just give a definition of what a CCPC is?
2: Very broadly, it's any corporation uh, that is private, so I mean it's not a publicly traded company and it's not controlled by either a non-resident or a public company. So most of our smaller medium sized uh, businesses that are incorporated in Canada are CCPCs or any other um, private corporations typically fall into this definition. Okay.
1: And how about small business deduction?
2: Yeah, the small business deduction is a tax incentive that uh, has was introduced several years ago uh, in Canada to provide smaller businesses with the opportunity to reinvest profits into the business uh, without paying a high rate of corporate tax. So to use an example right now in Ontario, Uh, The combined federal and Ontario corporate tax rate on general business income is 26.5% versus income eligible for this small business deduction, that rate goes down to 13.5% or it's scheduled for 12.5% next year. There's a significant tax uh, savings or I would call it tax deferral available for small business deduction eligible income so the, the total small business deduction that can be available is up to $500,000 per year for an associated group of corporations this is corporations that uh that the same group of persons owns or uh, it's more broad than that with with some cross ownership between related groups of persons but it's a kind of a group of companies or a family of companies share this small business deduction limit
1: okay so if you have if i had 3 corporations and I own all the shares in all three of them, it would be 500000 total for all three, not just for each one. That's right. Okay. Um, another term, active income.
2: Yeah. So active income isn't uh, a specifically defined term as such in the Income Tax Act, um, but that's a concept that pra- as practitioners, we talk about all the time. We were really referring to active business income, meaning it's income earned from actually carrying on a business, whether it's selling goods, services, or that sort of thing.
1: Okay. And then maybe could you set that in opposition to passive income? Mm-hmm.
2: The, the contrast to active, that's right, is passive income, um, which again isn't defined as that term, but we use that term in practice to describe income like interest rent, dividends, uh, capital gains, royalties, the sorts of things where you have just invested in something, some capital property, generally, you've bought something, and then it just provides an income stream to you. You don't have to be actively engaged in that business. It just provides income to you, call that passive income.
1: Okay. Two more here that I think we should touch on, and these will... All be part of the discussion, but I, I think these last two maybe are things that are not even as common for um, outside of the tax field to hear. I know that a lot of business owners probably hear the term active income or passive income i don 't know that these two so the first of these being aggregate investment income
2: yeah that's one that you wouldn't uh, hear around the dining room table probably uh, aggregate <laughs> investment income is the the Defined term in the Income Tax Act uh, essentially relating to passive income. So it's the total investment income of the corporation, which includes those things, rent, uh, royalties, interest, and the taxable portion of capital gains. So capital gains are only half taxable in Canada. The taxable half is at it's aggregate investment income. But dividends are fr- from Canadian sources that are not taxable. So that is not included in this aggregate investment income definition.
1: Okay. And then the last being adjusted aggregate investment income.
2: This is a new term that just came in this uh, set of rules uh, legislated in 2018 that we're talking about. and It's implemented, implemented effective January 2019. So aggregate in, adjusted aggregate investment income starts with that aggregate investment income, and then it just makes a few adjustments to it. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about some of them, but it doesn't consider capital losses from other years, and it does include dividends from non-connected corporations, or I should say, uh, from an investment portfolio. Those dividends are added to this aggregate adjusted aggregate investment income calculation.
1: Okay. All right. And like you said, I think we'll get into some more of that later. So for the listeners there, um, that was a good idea high-level high, high level definition, but we'll delve into that a little bit more here further on. So to move into some specifics about the changes that we referenced in 2018, uh, let's talk about why aggregate investment income is so important for CCPCs now. Could you touch briefly on this for the listeners?
2: Yeah. So in the current environment, aggregate investment income is taxed differently than active business income. And so Right now, it's taxed already at at a fairly high rate upfront, geared to match or be close to the top personal tax rates that hovers around fifty percent in different provinces. and then you you get a portion of that tax back when dividends are paid in this sort of complex system we have. Uh, but it works out to to take away most of the advantage of earning investment income in a corporation rather than earning it personally. that's That's why it's there now. Going forward with this new set of rules, aggregate adjusted aggregate investment income is suddenly more important because not only is it taxed in this sort of different way, but it also impacts how business income is taxed, because having too much adjusted aggregate investment income will reduce the small business deduction limit and so access to that lower rate of corporate tax on active business income as well. So it's now expanded its applications so with more more important than it was uh, in past
0: years
1: wow i just in the back of my head i think all these changes that always come down the line and then the actual i guess you'd say the enforcing of them at some point it's almost got to be a nightmare for somebody from the cra to go through okay well we implemented these changes in this year and then this change came the next year and you know you're going back and doing an audit and you got five different you know it changed five times over the course of the period that you're auditing or something it seems like it just be a mess
2: that's right and especially uh we won't get into the details of this right now but in 2016 so just two years ago there were significant changes again to the small business deduction for sales to other corporations that there's some common ownership or a related person has ownership in that one and your small business deduction is restricted as well so we're just um, we've been filing tax returns under those rules for, for about just about two years now. And the, the audit season, I guess, is just sort of starting on those. We'll see how CRA applies those rules. And we'll have to wait a couple more years to see how the CRA attacks this new set of rules on, on the, the adjusted aggregate investment income. Yeah, It's not mm-hmm. easy for, for the CRA to keep up either.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I, Anyways, I guess that's another topic. I won't get off sidetrack too much. So, laid out some terms, and then as well, you've addressed why this is especially important now to Canadian-controlled private corporations. Uh, can you delve into, and I know I know you started this already, but maybe just touch on it again at a high level. What goes into calculating the aggregate adjusted investment income? And just briefly before you answer that, but I want to remind the listeners that this is generalized information to help inform so that you can engage proactively with your tax and different financial professionals about it. It's not specific tax advice. You know, we don't know your specific situations and so we aren't in a position, Bud's not in a position to lend any specific tax advice. We're just addressing the topic generally. So just put that out there so that we all know that to start with. So anyways, Bud, uh, what goes into the aggregate adjusted in uh, investment income calculation, or I guess I said it wrong, adjusted aggregate investment income.
2: Yeah, I know, uh, I'm sure our uh, professional liability insurance company appreciates the blanket caveat. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that as well as my speak. compliance. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, Thanks for that, Brian. Yeah, so in this calculation of adjusted aggregate investment income, uh, we talked a little bit about some specifics. We take a step back and think about it. On the whole, What what really goes into this, calculation is the investment income earned. So what is investment income? Again, that's interest dividends from from an investment portfolio where you own less than 10% of the shares um, of an individual corporation. So it's those interest dividends, uh, the taxable part of capital gains, if you have rent or royalties as well, any of that passive investment income kind of goes into this definition. And what's one uh, fairly significant uh, item that they they wrote into the legislation here that I think surprised most of us as tax practitioners is we know that taxable capital gains can be offset or or reduced by allowable capital losses or capital losses that were realized we can apply against taxable capital gains but for the purpose of these rules only the capital losses realized in the same year as the capital gain will reduce this adjusted aggregate investment income. Uh, We're used to a a carryover period where you can carry capital losses back three years or forward indefinitely. That still applies for for paying normal income taxes, but losses carried over from another year don't reduce our adjusted aggregate investment income. So we can run into situations where you had a big capital loss last year, big capital gain this year. Suddenly that capital gain this year is uh, causing you to have a high adjusted aggregate investment income, which in turn reduces the small business deduction uh, limit available. So how that plays out, uh, that reduction of the small business deduction limit, is when you have adjusted aggregate investment income over $50,000 in the year, then the next year, the small business deduction limit will be reduced by $5 for every dollar that you were over that $50,000 threshold. So essentially, from fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of ag- adjusted aggregate investment income, uh, your small business deduction limit for the corporate group drops from five hundred thousand right down to zero. Uh, so that's the the range of of significance here for this this calculation.
1: Okay, so I'm trying to wrap my head around this a little bit more while we're talking here. So I guess to flesh that out a little bit, the if I had a capital loss last year under the present rules, um, well, I guess it's, it's still under these rules, I can carry that forward and apply that to some parts of my tax return for this year, but not to lower my adjusted aggregate investment income, it seems. So I guess maybe then the, is there a benefit to carrying them forward at all, or now with the current legislation, does that mean that you just realize the capital loss in the year that it's there, or or could there still be an advantage to carry it forwards?
2: Yeah, so there, carrying it, uh, carrying that loss over still allows you to reduce the the income taxes that you pay on that taxable capital gain. It still reduces taxable income, so you pay less tax on that gain in that other year. It just doesn't reduce this adjusted aggregate investment income. Um, so if you're in that fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars range of of adjusted aggregate investment income, and you're going to be losing some small business deduction limit, then you are m- missing out, I guess, by having a capital loss realized in a different year than a capital gain. So what we what what we'd like to see as much as possible is having those capital losses and capital gains realized in the same year uh, so that they do apply uh, on a net basis. This, this calculation, as they're coming in different years, we could have our small business section limit impacted.
1: Okay. So and I guess this is, I think, making more sense as you explain that. So if it's a small business where the, You know, they're typically not bumping up on that or where the aggregate, adjusted aggregate investment income at this point is not a concern. The same benefits to carrying that forward to apply to capital gain on a different year apply, it's probably more applicable and should be examined closer if you're bumping that threshold of what your investment income actually is. Right. Okay. Right. All right. I think we're probably on the same page there, but (laughs) there might've been a little question mark at the end of what you said there. (laughs) (laughs) uh,
2: That's where we start getting into a little bit more specific of a situation. uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. Make sure all the the terms are clearly, clearly defined and applied to the specific
1: situation. All right. Well, and I, I think I probably have a tendency that where, because I want to understand this as well as I could, I probably have a tendency to where I could force us down a rabbit hole and, uh, but I'm going to try not doing that. So we'll just, we'll just leave it there for now. So from what you've said thus far, the I'm assuming that the adjusted aggregate investment income is calculated for the corporation or the CCPC as a whole, not for each shareholder. So if in a simple example: husband and wife each own fifty percent of the shares of the corporation. Then the clawback still starts at the same level. It's not as if uh, they, you know, there's benefits to them. I guess for the for this purposes, there's specific benefits to having multiple shareholders.
2: Right. So this uh, the short answer is is that's right. The limit applies to the corporate group or the associated corporate group. Uh, regardless of the number of shareholders in there. So if it's just husband or, or if it's husband and wife in that group, or if it's just wife, it doesn't make a difference. The the longer answer might be that this uh, looks back, looking back to uh, the July 2017 tax proposals when they initially came out, we were expecting there to be rules in place to allow individuals to save for retirement uh, in the passive passive income tax proposals. That was one of the, the policy goals. And so the government's come up with this up to $50,000 threshold of, of annual income before it impacts small business action limit. And that was a question of, well, if there's more than one shareholder in the corporation, is that $50,000 going to apply to each shareholder? Or is that just the corporate group as a whole? The answer in the legislation is it's on a whole, the whole corporate group.
1: All right. I In my head, I have this, um, I guess you'd say it's like a mind map right now where I can just imagine if you have somebody who is very active and, you know, maybe is a shareholder in a lot of different canadian controlled private corporations, uh, they own, you know, this one and then they have some shares here and some shares here where the you know, what all gets connected or associated could get quite confusing and complex to where, anyways, another rabbit hole. I won't go down there for now. <laughs>
2: That's right. That can get complex, and there are there's even new rules connected with with these this uh, new 2018 legislation. They've added a new deeming rule saying if you transfer property or pay a loan or uh, or somehow try to separate corporations that would otherwise be associated, so that you don't fall into these new rules, those corporations will still be deemed to be associated. So it gets it gets uh, more complicated than it was before on the association front. That's definitely case by case discussion to to have with, uh, with a with a tax advisor.
1: Okay, so this question isn't one that I I sent you at all. Um, so I apologize, but um, it just comes to mind here. So if I have a corporation and I'm looking for another partner, say and. I don't know that the industry matters, but let's just say that I have a idea and I want to get to manufacturing a product and I wanna go on Dragon's Den and I get an investor. And so I get an investor for 20% of the company, and all of those people on Dragon's Den have a plethora of different companies that they own portions of. So I don't have any other companies, but they do. They now own 20% of my company. Do I basically under these rules, since they probably have maxed out, you know, they're the to where they don't get the small business deduction already. Is that basically gone for me because they own twenty percent of the shares of my company now?
2: The general rule to to look at for how much an investor has to have in your company before you're impacted is usually at least twenty five percent interest. So when somebody has less than twenty five percent, we usually you usually don't have to worry about it. And when they're not related at all to you, like like the dragons on Dragon's then wouldn't be related to you, uh, as far as I know, uh, then <laughs> <laughs> you 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 have actually a higher level of threshold. So as long as you maintain control of uh, your company, so you have more than 50%, uh, and they don't have control, then you'd still be in a separate group for association. Uh, but those rules yeah, are pretty complex, so we maybe shouldn't dive down too many different fact patterns.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I I watched an episode of Dragon's Den last night, so that's why that came to mind. So we've touched on some of the high levels here and such, and I'm trying to avoid some rabbit holes. But in light of this, what are some practical steps that an owner, a shareholder of a Canadian-controlled private corporation can take to minimize their AAII?
2: Yeah, there's... uh There are several strategies that are getting kicked around, and uh, so we'll we'll talk about a few of them here. Maybe just before we jump into that, there's one more component of AII to mention or to be aware of, is that selling off active business assets, so if you have an operating company and you sell a piece of equipment or a piece of land that you were using in the business um, and you realize a capital gain there, that doesn't impact your aggregate investment income, or sorry, your adjusted aggregate investment income. So, this is only looking at your, your sort of passive investment portfolio or that pool of assets. Uh, so, if we're looking at that pool of assets, this, the simplest sort of approach that, that some clients are taking is just taking some of those passive assets out of a corporation. So, if you take those passive assets out of a corporation uh, back into an individual's hands, then they no longer fall into these rules and you're okay. The, the, the trouble with that is, is figuring out a way to get those assets out without a big tax bill um so uh, in some cases you'll have a shareholder's loan or a capital dividend account that you can take the funds out to the the individual shareholder directly without a lot of tax implications more often that's not an option available so we have to come up with more uh creative solutions to uh to minimize AAI. aii and so looking at those creative solutions that could be sort of on the investment side of how to structure your investments or you could be looking at other other opportunities of how to hold your investment and yeah we can talk through a, a few of those those strategies uh, if you'd like
1: sure, and I guess this this kind of lines up then with my alley where it really intrigues me so I guess as it connects to financial planning and these different uh, strategies it would seem that, um, of course, in coordination with tax professional, there there's some strategies that can be implemented to try to minimize that. Some of them are relatively simple, I guess, that come to mind, and uh, some are a bit more complex. But uh, I really, I guess in saying that, it doesn't necessarily have to be complex for the shareholder, as long as you have, you know, good people in your corner, in essence, you know, the complexity lies in their end. But you should try to make it simple for the uh, shareholder. Anyways, some of those that come to mind and uh, and feel free, I'm just going to maybe go through some of these and then we can, we can circle back to them with some comments and follow-up things. Investing in corporate class uh, mutual funds, corporate class mutual funds being that they don't pay uh, distributions as regularly, at least if they do pay them at all, and they typically aren't paying interest income as a distribution at all. So the point being that you def- you aren't collecting income and and you're you know accruing a capital gain or deferring your gains till later, I would think as well utilizing some tax benefits of a life insurance policy owned by uh, the corporation that that could be utilized to shelter growth where some of those assets that are generating passive investment income maybe they can go into a. Life insurance policy, whether it's whole life, universal life, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty right now, but that there's some sheltering options there. A couple of them, um, I guess, basically, you know, stocks that don't pay dividends. There's a lot of times in Canada, maybe because of our love hate relationship with banks and such, and or with the bank stocks, we think of dividend paying stocks and blue chip dividend paying stocks. But of course, within somebody's risk parameters and all that stuff having investments that aren't paying dividends that aren't dividend paying stocks could actually help reduce that. Um, So not going to get into specific investments
2: themselves, but so that's something I can think of. Um, We've been taking that one, if I may interject uh, taking that one to the extreme. We met with a, I met with a client a, a couple of weeks ago who that he'd be willing to just entirely take, take his investment portfolio, liquidate his investment portfolio and just hold it in, in cash to avoid having aggregate investment, uh, adjusted investment income. Uh, and so you're not earning any income at all. And so that's not maybe the, the best financial decision that your, your investments are no longer working for you at all. But that's sort of the extreme that, that, that some taxpayers are coming to thinking, I really just don't want to have to worry about these new rules. So maybe we'll just get out of investments altogether. And, um, I don't think that that would be the right solution for for most, or maybe not for anyone. But uh, yeah, finding something that doesn't pay that regular income stream could help.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I just have a feeling that, you know, there's a, a fair number of business owners that have over the years, as they had accumulated. Uh, cash in the corporation they went out and bought a rental property and then they bought another one and they bought another one and that that rental income from those will add up a lot i'm going to try avoiding a rabbit hole here but one thing comes to mind when i um, say that is there in a general generally speaking if i if somebody has a bunch of rental properties can they move those to a different corporation. Now it's still affiliated, but a different corporation, I guess. And is there a way to make that where the business itself is being a property management business or something along those lines so that what in one case is passive because the primary business of the uh, corporation say is retail, that now if they're held in this company, the primary business of that corporation is property management?
2: Yeah, there's um, the specific, uh, the, the definition of, of a specified investment business uh, looks at uh, whether there are more than five full-time employees in a business that would otherwise be considered passive. Uh, if there's more than five full-time employees in that business, then it's no longer considered passive, but now it's active business income. So reaching that point on, um, on a rental business where you've bought even even five or six houses, you're still not going to be hiring five full-time employees to, to get out of that. Uh, there might be more, more creative ways to sort of minimize that passive rental income. But anywhere you move them around the corporate group, uh, if that corporation is still associated and it is still earning income from the rental business, then that would still be a passive rental. Uh, income that is going to be caught.
1: So you're saying I'm not a genius that just found a loophole.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't have been the first one to try that loophole.
1: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to be conscientious of time. So I'm going to touch on a few other things here as possible strategies. So we've talked about corporate class, mutual funds, the option of utilizing life insurance um, really as an investment vehicle, not necessarily strictly for the the death benefit. Um, We've talked about uh, controlling the income that comes from investments, such as the example of buying a stock that doesn't pay a dividend versus one that pays uh, a dividend. And as well, I think there's a couple other things that maybe are worth mentioning just as in passing here, IPPs or RCAs, individual pension plans, retirement compensation arrangements. Um, I think business owners are starting to see more of that and they'll probably hear more of that from the tax professionals and such here in the coming, uh, upcoming as a result of this. Once again, I think there's a rabbit hole here that we can go down to, but if I could try to summarize that and then Bud, maybe you can uh, correct me anywhere if I stray a little bit. Um, An IPP is basically a owner of a corporation can set up a defined benefit pension plan for themselves. And if they make a contribution to the IPP, then it is an expense to the corporation. And because it's it's no longer than it's in the pension versus being um, in the passive asset group of the corporation that it separates itself out, I guess, so that the earnings there are not being calculated towards the aggregate adjusted aggregate investment income and rca similar principle it's it's not considered a defined benefit plan but a retirement plan specifically for key people to a corporation that could be the owner it could be somebody else but where you can create an expense to move it to the plan um, so that it's not sitting in that corporate investment pool anymore generating income in the corporation is that a good summary maybe just a very high level
2: yeah that's right and I'd say even even more broadly both the individual pension plan or retirement compensation arrangement or the life insurance policy the the principle of how that helps with this aggregate investment income adjusted aggregate investment income discussion is it takes these investment assets or these passive assets out of the corporation they go into some other entity whether it's a life insurance policy a pension plan or a retirement compensation arrangement and so the the Assets are removed, so the income that's earned on them is no longer a corporate income stream. So we no longer have to worry about that passive income uh, reducing our small business section on it.
1: Okay, very good. Um, one last one here I'm going to just mention, um, and this goes back to, I believe it would be episode three of the podcast. I sat down with Marlo Gingrich of Abundant Canada and we discussed some charitable giving. So in preparing for this, the I guess a strategy that came to mind would be if there's a a business owner who's quite charitable and they're routinely giving out of the corporation, let's say that they earn a dividend and they basically donate that dividend to a charity and they anticipate continuing to do so, they could take that security itself, donate that security in kind and there's some tax benefits of doing that in kind, which go back to that episode and listen to and then not donate that entire amount to right away to the charity of choice but as it continues to earn income just continue to donate the income same as what they're doing before but because they've removed that asset and put it into the donor advised fund type of structure um, it's not generating that income in the corporation anymore
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another great way to move, remove that asset and so that income stream out of the corporation with the added benefit of, of the, the donation tax credit uh, and benefits of, of donating a security, that's a, a good option for sure for, for the philanthropic uh, business owner.
1: Okay. Well, those are just, those are some that came to mind when I was preparing any others that just quickly that um, we've missed that are just kind of the, the generalized things, um, Bud.
2: No, I think we've, I think we've touched on, on all of the, Sort of investment level strategies. The one broader strategy that uh, we've been looking at for a few clients is seeing if if we can break the association of of corporations. So maybe we have two uh, two siblings that each have their own operating company, and mom and dad in the middle who have shares in both operating companies, but but they also have an investment portfolio in a corporation. So mom and dad's corporation is associated with both siblings' corporations or their kids' corporations, and can impact both of their small business sections. So now we have to look at, okay, can we just get rid of this connection so each each child or sibling can have their own small business section limit that isn't impacted by by these rules, being careful to not fall into the new anti uh, avoidance rules uh with, with respect to association that have been introduced as well. So that's something that that uh, a corporate tax professional can can help uh help look at.
1: Very good. All right. Um, well, when it comes to the Income Tax Act and all that's entailed there, I think it's safe to say there's always more that can be discussed. But I think that we've given a pretty good practical overview for listeners. We've defined some terms. We've given kind of a calculation just generally of how the aggregate investment income and then that adjusted aggregate investment incomes calculated And then there's a few strategies that you know they might tweak something um, in the listener's mind that you can take and bring to your tax professional at least to have a discussion about it. Anything else that you wish to share today, um, or resources that you want to recommend, Bud?
2: Yeah, I I, uh, always think of making a Google search and looking at some some articles as a uh, a nice sort of first step to get some background information on these things. But getting caught up on what you're reading on Online uh, can can lead to more worry maybe than it's worth. So after getting sort of a basic understanding of these rules and and some feeling of hey maybe this could apply to me and my corporation or maybe I should do some planning to uh, make sure that they don't apply to to, to my situation uh, then that's a good time to reach out to a tax professional to, to discuss the situation specific to your your scenario and your facts and circumstances.
1: Yeah, I second that. I uh, I think if somebody were to try to plumb the depths of this topic on their own, probably there's a lot of people who very intelligent and high acumen business owners who could certainly do that. But where time's better spent is probably focusing on their business and you know having a generalized level and then having a trusted professional to I guess have in their corner with them. So I think that's a great. Uh, Nexus into concluding this podcast episode. For you listeners, unfortunately, we just actually appear as lost, Bud, and our connection with him. So I'm going to conclude this episode here without him. I want to thank Bud for coming on the episode and sharing some of his knowledge and expertise. I hope that you as listeners found it valuable. If you'd like to get in contact with Bud, uh, once again, it's Bud Arnold. He's a tax specialist with Collins Barrow and works out of guelph and allura um, his email address is bcarnold arnold at collinsbarrow.com bc at collinsbarrow.com he's also active on linkedin so you can find him on linkedin and you can connect with him there and uh, if you want to follow up with him then uh, you certainly can otherwise as well you know, If you have a tax professional you trust that you're working with right now, um, hopefully this armed you with a little information so that you can uh, be knowledgeable about the topic um, as we now look forward to the tax planning and the implementation of these uh, different uh, regulations that we discussed today. Um, as well, I'm going to put in a final plug here for sound financial planning as well. I think that from the episode, hopefully you've also seen that having a, a financial planner who is knowledgeable, um, is not a tax, uh, expert or specialist such as Bud, but is knowledgeable about the different implications of the taxation of different types of investments and the different types of income from investments. I hope that you can see the importance of having a financial planner and having a financial plan in place so that, uh, you can implement strategies and, uh, can work with your accountant and such to put them in place. So that's my plug for financial planning and the importance of that. Uh, So in conclusion, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Once again, please, if you found this information valuable, share it with others who you think it would be valuable for and uh, leave a review on uh, iTunes as well. Subscribe to it via the podcast app if you have an Apple device or otherwise. There's other podcast apps on uh, other devices. Uh, Podbean would be one. Stitcher, I think, is another one. There's a plethora of them. You can find it. If you subscribe, the episodes are released every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. So they'll then be in the app and you can listen to them when it's convenient to you. So that concludes this episode. Tune in again next time, two weeks from now, when uh, we sit down with uh, another business owner to share their story. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to the Fields of Success podcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please take a moment to share it with your friends and provide a review. As well, if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, please email brian at podcast at... Seed Time and Harvest WC.ca. That's podcast at Seed time, and harvest, If you would like further information about Brian's firm, Seed Time and Harvest Wealth Council of Manulife Securities Incorporated, please check out the website at www.seedtimeandharvestwc.ca. There you can find more information, schedule a meeting, and check out the notes from this podcast episode. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.